Episode 2, Golden Age Thinking. Strictly observed religion is often predicated on the idea of a golden age, when theology was pure and close to its origins. It's a tempting notion, simple and alluring. We come across it in spectacular style in Pentecostal churches, those almost industrial scale places of worship in our inner cities and industrial estates, so popular with the African and Caribbean communities. Take the idea within much of Pentecostalism about the baptism in the Holy Spirit. We see that clearly laid out in the early chapters of Acts and in fact throughout Acts and mentioned throughout uh, much of the rest of the New Testament. Now, not long into the early stages of Pentecostalism in the early 1900s, uh, a chap called Charles Parham came up with the idea that the way you know you're baptized in the Spirit is when you speak in unknown tongues, glossolalia, as it's sometimes called. Bishop Joe Aldred is a leading figure in the Pentecostal church. Pentecostalism has been on the increase ever since it started, and it came out of a, a kind of thirst for a form of Christianity that was more akin to what people feel they read about in the New Testament, uh, where it was a vibrant, a living community in which a miraculous God engaged, in which people cared for each other and lived out the love of God in a real, tangible, practical way. What we find is that as soon as it got going, people identified with it um, as something that had energy, had synergy. It's as though a dam bursts. Speaking in tongues is not universal in the Pentecostal tradition, but where it does occur, it's an attempt to recapture the fervor and energy of the disciples in the early days after Jesus' death. However, it also looks forward to a golden age of the future when Christ returns for the last judgment. There's something similar in the ultra-Orthodox Jewish tradition. We went to visit Kate Lowenthal, an elderly but sprightly Jewish grandmother who lives in Stamford Hill North London. I noticed on her door a plaque in Hebrew, Baruch haba melech ha-mashiach, blessed be the king, the Messiah who's coming. That's the fundamental tangible piece of optimism in Judaism, you know, that the, 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 the Messiah will come and there'll be no more war and hopefully no more suffering and the world will be, be as it should be. A more hard-edged approach to Golden Age thinking comes from Reuven Lee, a Cambridge-based rabbi who belongs to a Hasidic community called Chabad. Anyone who's promoting monotheism and the unity of God in the world, um, and, you know, I'd, I'd prefer it to be as unitarian as possible, 
is I definitely, as I think, definitely a good thing. Um, I think the real battle um, for religious people today is against this assumption that there is such a thing as the secular sphere. Um, for those of us who believe in the unity of God, it's a form of idolatry for us to compete against, where there can be a place where God is not present. Um, and I think that is what we all have to be uh, working towards um, and arguing respectfully, but forcefully and confidently that um, Hashem Echad, that there is only one God. The most widespread and creative golden age thinking taking place in the religions of the book comes out of the Muslim community. Salafi Islam is the fastest growing strand of that religious tradition in Britain. Guy Eyre has just finished a PhD on this branch of Islam. So I think um, Salafism as a contemporary purist sort of Salafism is in essence, it's the call to a return to a or we might call a pristine Islam, as it was first revealed. And so therefore to the two primary sort of textual sources of Islam, the Quran and also the Sunnah, the Sunnah being the kind of practice of the Prophet himself. Um, and so Salafism follows these two textual sources in accordance with the understanding and the practice of the so-called Asalif Asaleh, who are, in other words, the pious predecessors. And um, these are understood to apply to the first three generations of Muslims. So in kind of reviving this pristine Islam of these Salaf Saleh, these pious predecessors, Salafis kind of reject almost all theological doctrine which has developed since the first fitna, the kind of civil war which divided the Muslim communities in the middle of the 7th, uh, the 7th century of the Common Era. Part of the appeal of Salafism is, is its certitude and kind of doctrinal clarity, right? I think they are probably some of its kind of main attractions um, and this kind of extremely textual kind of methodology and exclusive dependence as it claims on the kind of quote-unquote soundproof texts from Revelation. So I think this kind of certainty perhaps and maybe we can see it in a you know, turbulent world where individual identities are perhaps getting lost in this kind of um, the storm of competing cultural and political discourses, you know, pulling for their allegiance, etc. So this kind of certainty, I think, is a key attraction. Um, and I think also the Salafi self-perception of being guardians, guardians rather, of true Islamic um, orthopraxy and orthodoxy is very appealing. And it's kind of perhaps it's kind of seductively simple message. You know, it's intellectually rigorous, evidence-based approach, free of you know, perceived corruptions of, say, you know, cultural traditions, folkloric religion, etc. Um, I think this all is part of it, yeah. So obviously it doesn't mean that we're going to sort of walk, be walking around with, uh, on camels and, sort of, and so forth. This is Abdul Haq, a Salafi convert of Ghanaian origin. But in terms of the religion, in terms of how the religion is understood, no, that should be something where um, we, we do look, up, up, uh, look back, refer back to that generation. Obviously, the text, um, and this goes back to sort of, we could say Islamic law and ethics and legal theory, how they are to be implemented in the modern uh, times. And there is no really contradiction, really. There are core rules and uh, principles, and those rules and principles still be established today, as long as you know, these um, guidelines are still traversed. So that's not necessarily uh, you know, problematic. It can become problematic if there's some people try to understand the text but, uh, um, according to their own volition. That's where the problems come in. Um, and that could that leads to uh, you know, could say folkloric practices and baseless traditions, which are unfortunately adhered to. So, for example, like sort of paying visits to grave sites and so forth, and 
even even if if not leading to actually worship in and of itself, they're leading to sort of superstitious uh, concepts. Shirk. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, uh, and that's in Islam. That's the worst sin. A lot of thought has gone into how to interpret the Quran in the modern world. Here's Amra Bone, a judge in the Birmingham Mosque Sharia Court. Islam has had diverse cultural expressions. So um, here in the Sharia Council as well, we are expressing um, Islam. Um, in order to be just, we have to express Islam in our context. We have historical uh, fiqh, which is an understanding of Islamic law, but we can take from that, but we cannot apply it directly because it belongs to a different cultural context. So in that sense, if you'd like to call it British Islam, but um, many people may sort of object to the term as British Islam because inevitably there's going to be a cultural expression, but it's not a new form of Islam because that uh, understanding that you will have different cultural expression is in existence from its very beginning. Islam did not come into a vacuum. It came into Arabic cultural context. And we know that there are certain aspects that are um, universal um, and there are other aspects that are very culturally um, um, entrenched. And, um, and hence, when the scholars moved from one particular area to another, they change their minds and, and these are documented. And so similarly here in Britain we have a very unique context and we are trying and doing our best to, to apply um, Islamic guidelines and teachings within our context. Some of the um, scholars that they, um, when they expressing Islam, they they may be expressing it with in in the uh, in terms of language of a language which belonged to a thousand years ago. The director of the Karama Institute, Musharraf Hussein, has been tackling this subject head on. You know, I, for the last four years, I was immersed in the Quran because I was translating it from Arabic to English. And um, to be honest, I have come to this conclusion that it is God, you know, who is the creator. And how does he look at his creation? And we are told that, you know, the whole creation is, is God's family. And we have no right as a human being actually to look down on anyone. Um, we had a great scholar and a great uh, teacher, a spiritual guide uh, called Mujaddad Al-Afsani uh, of the 16th century. And, uh, you know, he writes very clearly in one of his letters, which he's sending to his disciple, he writes very clearly. He says, you know, I believe that a non-Muslim, a, um, a criminal, uh, is somebody who is... Uh, a heretic is better than me. Now, this is a man who is regarded as uh, one of the great saints, a uh, great scholar of his time. In fact, the reviver of the second millennium. Uh, and yet he says, no, the other is better than me. There's a new generation of Muslims, of course, some of them secular in outlook, who don't spend much time thinking about the origins of their religious tradition. You could say that Generation M as they're known, are engaging in the opposite of golden age thinking. Here's Sadak Hamid, co-author of the book British Muslims, who has coined the phrase Muslim cool. It was a natural response to 
the indigenization of uh, Islam in Britain. By that I mean it was an inevitable organic outcome of people who were born and bred here. Basically trying to combine their ethnic and faith and national identities, those three dimensions together in a, comf in a cohesive, confident sense of self. It was trying to carve a space and say, look, this is, this is who I am. I am Muslim and I am British. And, you know, do you accept me for that? So it's a, it's it's a, the challenge actually is to wider society. It's not to the back to the religious tradition itself. Now um, it also buys into different global youth cultures as well. So consumer culture, music culture, art and fashion, and so on. So it was a, it was a, it was basically a pick and mix. People trying to make a whole out of different different aspects of being young. Also, it is distancing from the more traditional conservative interpretations of faith that were very restrictive and it's, it's a big contrast to that it's about being confident outgoing it's about being creative and also justifying this rationalizing the muslimness by rereading the religious tradition so it's not like these young people just sat up and said oh we're going to create something called muslim cool it was a, a negotiation and a, a referenced and evidenced contemplation on reformist thinking, reformist scholars who basically said, look, you can do this, you can be Muslim and you can be British at the same time. There's nothing wrong with it. For the older generation, golden age thinking can take different forms. Some refer back not to the generations immediately after the Prophet Muhammad, but to the great caliphates of the Middle Ages, when science, astronomy and medicine flourished. Here's Ibrahim Mogra, an imam from Leicester. We continue to talk about the golden age of Islam. Muslims contributed this to science. They contributed this to medicine, to astronomy, to chemistry, to mathematics, and to language, and art, and poetry. I say, yeah, that's all well and good. That's all in the past. Ibrahim would rather project concepts of the golden age into the future and universalize them. His thoughts are a good note to end on. What are we contributing today? Uh, it, it saddens me that there isn't much of real significance that Muslims can really uh, shout about to say, this is the Muslim contribution to science in the 21st century, to architecture in the 21st century, to medicine in the 21st century. There isn't really much that we can shout about. So I would like to see a a new golden age for Muslims, not that just keeps going back to the past. But if that's what our predecessors did, let's outdo them and do something far greater to make the lot of humanity a better one. How wonderful it would be if the person who finds the, the cure to HIV AIDS is a Muslim person. I mean, any person will do. But if that person happens to be Muslim, that's just an added thing to, to be proud about for me as a Muslim. And it's not just about Muslims. I think this is a question of all human beings coming together. Even if you look at the golden age of Islam in the past, I think it's rather unfair if Muslims claim all of it for themselves. There was certainly a contribution by others, Jews, Christians and others, that the Muslims engaged, that they collaborated with and worked with. It's a collective human endeavour. 
uh, of course, driven by Muslim. And so in, in the future, I think that should be the case that all of us as, as human beings, we collaborate, we cooperate and we work together to create a new golden age for humanity in which the Muslims play a significant role as they did in the past. Thank you for listening to this special podcast by the Wolf Institute. Next time, we're talking mission. How do strictly observant religions reach out to the other?